Banking with Arundel Federal Savings Bank means so much more than you think. Your money stays in the local community. It helps everyone grow and prosper. From a young couple moving into their first ever home to a growing family getting the bigger house they need. What else would you expect from one of the best community-minded banks in all of Maryland? Visit ArundelFederal.com for current rates and special offers and help keep it local. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Baltimore is known for its lightning-fast plays. And with Arundel Federal Savings Bank, you can capitalize on that. Make football season more exciting by opening a Goalmaker Savings Account with Arundel Federal Savings Bank. Every time Baltimore scores a passing touchdown during the 2022 season, your interest rate will increase by 0.10%. Now that's real smart banking. Terms and conditions apply. Visit ArundelFederal.com for more info. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into this week's episode of Garden of Doom. And our guest today is Shaman Brandon Safford. And I'm really pleased to have Shaman Safford with us for this episode. We're going to talk about... Uh, his uh, background, his journey, and a lot of the things involving First Nations. We've we've sort of danced around it a little bit. We've gotten some people who to tell us stories um, and myths and and legends that they've re- researched and reported on. But I don't know that we've ever gotten really close to the to the source and uh, the authentic. Not to not to dismiss any of the prior guests. But uh, today we, we're, we're, getting, we're getting to the nub. So uh, 
Shaman uh, Safford, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Jeff? I'm doing just fine, and I believe you're coming to us from uh, the Dallas, Texas area? Yeah, yeah out in my uh, meditation garden. Excellent. All right, well, tell us a little bit about your background and your studies and your journey and how you became a shaman. Sure. Um, let's see. I started off uh, from a very early age. Uh, I had a bit of an odd background religiously as my uh, parents went to a extremely fundamentalist church. Uh, my granddad was a Freemason. My grandmother was daughter of the Northern Star. And uh, so naturally, we eventually moved on to the uh, uh, DFW area and became Methodist. Okay. <laughs> and well, before we go further, I mean, first of all, for the audience out there, DFW is Dallas-Fort Worth. So for anyone who doesn't fly domestically in the United States, <laughs> so you know what that means. Also, I don't know what Daughter, daughter of the Northern Star is. So what's, what's that mean? Oh, sure. So a uh, long time ago, back in the 1800s, uh, when, um, you know, genetics and eugenics and other things were, uh, you know, kind of coming into their height of popularity and some of their awful aspects as well. Uh, the Freemasons and uh, uh, one of their, they, the, they, there's a sister group to the Freemasons that uh, the women uh, follow and they have different chapters. And one of the chapters is Daughters of the Northern Star. And uh, I can't remember my grandfather's corresponding chapter off the top of my head of the Freemasons, but basically uh, they had something of a uh, program where, uh, I don't know if breeding would be the right word, but they would try and uh, mate off uh, the two chapters uh, to each other to continue a, a you know, particular line or whatnot. Oh, so, okay. Uh, and then on my other grandparents' side, uh, you know, I had uh, my, my uh, grandmother was a sack and box uh, Indian. And so throughout my childhood, we would uh, go to powwow and I would learn more and more about the ways of our tribe, and the sack and box nation, uh, which currently resides in uh, Stroud, Oklahoma. Uh, at least the reservation does. Is that part of a larger tribe I, I forgive me for if i'm using the wrong uh, terms but i you know i i understand like the, the sioux were a gigantic nation but made up of separate distinct but related tribes i'm not sure if this is a similar situation or if it's a sort of like your standalone yeah actually um so the the it's it's a great question because even the the sack and box tribe uh it has kind of a story similar to that um, they started off in the Great Lakes area, uh, one of the many nations within the uh, Algonquin peoples, and uh, so that was primarily the, you know, the, the common tongue that our, our people would speak. Uh, and then the Sackenbachs uh, weren't act; they didn't actually call themselves the Sackenbachs. They were the, the, the Sauk, and they lived on the island with another tribe. And uh, that island's people were the first ones uh, that we know of that uh, Lewis and Clark actually came into contact with. Oh. Uh, and so um, they 
referred to us as the Sac and Box tribe when it was two separate tribes. Then later they got lumped into one, and when we were forced to migrate southward to the reservations, uh, uh, many uh, generations later, we would go and uh, we split into two separate people. So there's actually a separate uh, uh, Sac and Box nation up north, uh, and then there's the the one in Stroud as well. So. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Okay. So where we left off, I think you said Methodist? Yeah, yeah. And I had planned on being a minister. I was extremely active in the church. I've always been very religious. Uh, and uh, then one day everything kind of changed for me because there had been uh, what's called a narthex that they had been planning to build at the church that we were going to. And they even had a little uh, donation jar called Nichols for Narthex. And the entire time that I'd been going to this church, uh, you know, we've been saving up and it was planned to be named after uh, this lovely gentleman named Tom Vastine who had gotten the church started back when it was just some folding chairs in the garage people who wanted to do more studies, uh, Bible studies and stuff. Um, but uh, they ended up naming the Narthex after a lady who came in and, uh, you know, she was very rich. No one at the church knew her. She's kind of just one of those Easter Sunday people. And uh, uh, she donated the rest of the money. And I saw that the money, was they named the Narthex after her. And basically, I saw it was, uh, the money was more important to the, uh, at least that church, uh, than, uh, you know, the people who had invested their time in it. And, you know, as a teenager, that, that really broke my faith at the time. And uh, I started questioning all sorts of things. Eventually, one of the ministers there, uh, Bob Tice, introduced me to Gnosticism uh, and uh, something of a metaphor of the transference of souls using the water process of transpiration uh, as an example. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I can go into it if you're not. Uh, uh, I'm not. I was going to ask you, yes. Oh, okay. So uh, the TLDR version is, uh, for those familiar with the cycle of transpiration, you know, you have water in the ocean uh, or lakes, and it eventually evaporates and rises up, condenses, forms clouds, which then turn to rain, and fall back down to the land or the, the ocean itself uh, and uh, rejoins the water cycle. So you have this kind of eternal water cycle going. Uh, and uh, water had always meant a great deal to me. I've always had very much a connection to it. And so the way he described Gnosticism was that uh, we start off in the cloud, uh, soul-wise, uh, or the ocean. And, uh, you know, the ocean is one body of water, but it's also made up of drops that have now become indistinguishable from one another. Uh, but the ocean wants to experience the finite, and so it evaporates, and the water vapor rises up, and you have these individual gas molecules that, you know, in and of themselves don't really do much until they condense enough to form a single droplet and falls back down to earth. And so the human body and uh, soul life cycle and whatnot is that of a single drop of water 
the sky back down towards the infinite. No matter what you do, it's eventually going to, to hit that, whether it falls on land and joins a stream and rolls back to the ocean or not. Eventually, all paths lead back to the ocean, uh, where we rejoin that massive body of souls that's now one. And then uh, we cease to be as individuals who are more one part of the greater whole again, which then will eventually decide that and components of us rise up as other gas molecules again, only to reform a droplet all back down as a different life or many different lives. Okay. And so that was really the, the first introduction I had uh, into the idea of tying science and religion and spirituality uh, and life into the natural cycles. Yeah, I, well, that's that's... Interesting, given everything. Um, I, I'm dying to ask you about Freemasonry, but I'm not going to because that, that's probably going to sidetrack us forever into, you know, and that's probably a different topic for a different day. Um, okay, so let, let, let's, let's skip all my side questions and we'll go straight to continuing where you left off. So the, the, this individual uh, led you to uh, introduce you to Gnosticism and... And obviously, that's that's not where it ended. You that put you on a certain path, right? Right. Uh, and eventually, my studies led me to uh, look at Wicca, uh, which was, uh, you know, a rather new thing being introduced during my teenage years. Uh, it's, uh, you know, based upon a lot of the, uh, uh, I, I guess you could even say, indigenous lore mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. Uh, Europe and uh, more naturalistic view of things, but uh, eventually I found that too constraining. Uh, in, in its, uh, I learned what I could from it effectively, and so expanded outwards and just started learning everything about every religion that I could, and uh, all the old uh, myths and legends that I could. Never lost my fascination with it. My friends, you know, because in Texas, you know, your religion is second only to your favorite football right. team. Yeah. And so people would ask me, you know, well, what, what religion are you? And, and I, at least the ones that I, you know, could trust not to burn me at the stake for not being Christian. And so I'd tell them I'm kind of a salad bar shaman. You know, I, I pick and choose from each of the various religions. Uh, and I, I kind of chose those based off of my beliefs rather than choosing my beliefs based on my religion. Right. And uh, the term just kind of uh, stuck over the years, but then I, I stopped speaking about it largely because uh, I ended up leaving that circle of, uh, of friends in Austin. So most of the people who knew me just knew me as me uh, rather than a shaman stayed uh more or less kept to myself, uh, kept my views and uh, spirituality and stuff private, uh, except, you know, going to visit my tribe. And even then, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, Native Americans aren't uh, immune to, you know, judgment and bias as well. Uh, and then eventually one day it just kind of felt like the world had changed enough to risk, you know, coming forward as someone who'd been a shaman for over 30 years. And, 
I was truly frightened at the time. You know, I was afraid I would wake up, you know, when I first posted it on, uh, I think it was Twitter, uh, I was worried uh, that I would wake up the next morning with crosses burning in my yard and death threats and things like that. But actually, it turned out everyone was like, oh, okay, cool. And, and it was a great feeling. So uh, I figured I'd just kind of continue going and helping and educating where I could and things that you know, I've been learning for decades that I just kind of took for common knowledge. Uh, I realized a lot of people didn't necessarily know about. So every now and then I, I poke my head up and answer a question, and offer a suggestion from there. And then I go back to just doing my own thing. How would you define shamanism? And at what point did you realize that's what you were? That was probably largely due to a wonderful book by Jeremy. Uh, his first name starts with a J. I think it's Jeremy or Jonathan. His last name is Narby, and it's called The Flight of the Feathered Serpent. Uh, so one of the, uh, and this kind of ties into my own tribe as well, but a very recurring legend throughout many tribes is that of the, uh, that of Quetzalcoatl or something similar. Uh, to him, which is a feathered serpent or rainbow serpent or cloud snake, basically a, a snake or a serpent that flies through the sky. And um, so uh, that was uh, the, the name of the book uh, is Flight of the Feathered Serpent. And when I'd seen the title, I thought, wow, that, that really speaks to me at the time. And, you know, again, trying to find any, any sort of myths and legends and religious books outside of the Judeo-Christian, Muslim, actually even the Muslim uh, and uh, Jewish areas uh, were still at the time very under uh, serviced in terms of available information. You know, this was before World Wide Web and things. Uh, well, it's interesting so, that you should say that because I recently was told, I'm not going to say learned because I'm not sure that it's accurate or not. But that the word seraph, like seraphim and seraphi, seraph means flying reptile, flying snake. I did not know that, but it actually stands to reason. You know, if you look at the depictions, if you have a snake outwards in front of you and its wings are outfolded, then uh, it would probably look very much like an angel. Yeah, so it's interesting. So even in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic, because it's, it's sort of, you know, they're all... Uh, I'm told people of the book, right? The books, um, you know, it's, it's there too, if that's correct. Now I, I have not asked a lot of people whether that's correct or not. Um, but the, the source that told me is pretty well known. And, you know, uh, so I'm going to at least take it as this. It's reasonably likely. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it checks with, it checks with, uh, you know, what I've learned and, and, uh, discovered over the years, uh, You'd be hard pressed not to find an ancient culture that didn't have some sort of a flying entity that uh, either brought blessings or banes to their tribes uh, or their families or whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. So sorry, I, I didn't mean to interject, but I just thought that that was an interesting little uh, point that, that uh, might have some impact. It is. And it actually touches upon a subject that is real dear to me, which is the... Uh, the propagation of certain mythic archetypes across cultures that 
you know, supposedly would never have contacted each other otherwise. And, you know, so that's kind of brought my own little ideas and theories as to, you know, how that might have happened, everything from the psychological and uh, uh, personification aspects to uh, a much greater trade network uh, existing on Earth, uh, you know, outside of recorded history, uh, which probably would account for so many oral histories. Anyway, um, the book, yeah, the book itself uh, talks about the shamanism of the uh, the, the uh, ayahuasca people and uh, some of the, the surrounding uh, tribes around them and their uh, their uh, the drink that they take partake of the ayahuasca and they get guided through by a shaman and uh, it's a very powerful hallucinogenic uh, drink and so for those who uh, are not normally able to see the you know the spiritual realm or their perceptions you know are you know what we think of as the regular human perception it kind of opens each of those senses up more and more and a very common sighting in there is uh glowing serpents of light uh and uh so not, not necessarily feathers per se, but the feathers themselves are light. And it was something that was uh, known among, you know, Aztec, Toltec, Inca, and then I'm finding out later, you know, as years go on, uh, uh, you know, Navajo, Hopi, Ute, and uh, then even later on than that, uh, you know, my own people. Uh, so, like, my, uh, my family name. Uh, uh, from the tribe Manitoba, uh, actually, depending on how you translate it, uh, is either glowing serpent or uh, you know winged serpent, winged snake, rainbow snake. So uh, it just uh, cemented it that much further that uh, you know maybe the reason it called to me so much is either that there's something there or at least that much of a familial connection to it. Um, but yeah, the uh, and then the snake itself uh, is uh, kind of, you could almost think of it as a holographic uh, zooming in of our own DNA. And among the shamans, our, uh, our DNA uh, isn't just code by which we are replicated, but rather something of an antenna that allows us to communicate with the world around us. And, you know, a lot of that was just kind of dismissed as nonsense until uh, the uh, proof of uh, biophotonic light uh, uh, you know, started coming into play, which is to say, you know, the human body and our DNA itself uh, emits a very uh, coherent light that um, if you were kind of to describe coherence versus brightness, uh, imagine that you can see a candle or like a, a cigarette cherry or something like that from very far away, even though it's not particularly bright. Uh, it doesn't emit the fulgence, but you can still see it uh, clearly. That is coherence uh, in a nutshell. And uh, our DNA itself uh, can both see and uh, can both send and receive. 
uh, light uh, along these uh, along these uh, these these paths. And so the idea of the ayahuasca is that you can increase your own photonic light and receive enough photonic light that you can communicate with the rest of the world around you that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to communicate with through, you know, sound or touch and things like that. But instead, basically radio transmission, because yeah. a lot of people don't realize radio waves are also light, so you could use it to communicate with animals and trees and the ground and the sky and so forth. Right. So you can embed information into the light and it travels well, the speed of light. Yeah. And so the idea of shamanism is that we are all connected in this way at all times to all living things around us via these effectively these radio waves, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, the ayahuasca, you know, I've never taken ayahuasca myself, not opposed to it. It's just, I've never had the occasion to travel that far south. Um, but, uh, you know, the ayahuasca isn't necessary for it. You can achieve the same thing with, uh, you know, a deep enough level of meditation and connectedness and, uh, whatnot. So, uh, basically I kind of took the messages from that book and lacking ayahuasca, uh, started pursuing other ways of getting my mind into a state where I could achieve that. And... Uh, you know, hence the next uh, 30 years of learning. Excellent. Um, okay. So at, so this is, the, the book was sort of, not the start, but maybe, you know, where you can define the start, even though there were lots of things that led you up to that. And so where did the, the book take you to? That's a great way to put it. Yeah, the book was, it may not have been the start. It was definitely a defining moment. Right. And uh, so the book actually put me on the path of learning even more about my tribe and uh, you know, my peoples and stuff. And I got to learn the origin story of our tribe almost completely by accident. So I was at a powwow one year and I was very, very depressed because I, I'd seen, you know, we, we are not a large tribe nor a wealthy tribe. You know, there's probably less than a hundred full, full blooded sack and box left. Uh, and so I was, I was depressed enough that I left the uh, powwow grounds and uh, one of my relatives was kind enough to open up the library for me to go in and start researching. And uh, that was one where I, I found out about what our uh, last name meant, but also. Banking with Arundel Federal Savings Bank means so much more than you think. Your money stays in the local community. It helps everyone grow and prosper. From a young couple moving into their first ever home to a growing family getting the bigger house they need. What else would you expect from one of the best community-minded banks in all of Maryland? Visit ArundelFederal.com for current rates and special offers and help keep it local. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. The Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge is the most advanced hunting knife kit on the market. Choose between a 5-inch boning knife and a 3-inch caping knife. Both equipped with the razor safe replaceable blade system and compatible with additional blade styles and a lightweight folding saw. 
The Razor Guide Pack is completed with a compact waxed canvas roll pack, keeping the kit organized between hunts. Find your edge this season and learn more at OutdoorEdge.com. Uh, I saw a symbol uh, in one of the books there on a medicine bag that had been in the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, archives. And uh, it was this cat with a very long tail that went all the way around it. And I had no idea what it was. It was just labeled the underwater panther. And that just really got my attention. Uh, again, not really knowing why, but I had to know more about this cat, the underwater panther, what happened. And so I spent the rest of the, uh, the weekend uh, trying to track down anyone I could find who remembered any of the old stories, uh, which, you know, you might not think is terrible difficult if you're at a res full of, uh, you know, other uh, Indians, but um, it, it, the thing is, most of those stories got killed out of us. Uh, there was, you know, the U.S. The U.S. enacted its own uh, version of genocide. I won't go too far into that, but suffice it to say, there was very much a time still in living memory of many of the tribe where uh, your children were taken from you and put into Christian schools and made to learn the white man's ways. And uh, if you didn't, you were killed. Uh, and sometimes you were killed even if you did. Wow. Uh, and you certainly didn't bring up any of the old ways. So really the only way anyone remembered it was by keeping their mouth shut and not you know, saying anything about it except behind closed doors. So, um, which, uh, you know, for anyone who's ever wondered Know, how come the knowledge isn't more readily available? We thank our parents and grandparents and their parents for setting up that, that situation. Uh, I don't really carry a grudge because I don't think anyone out there did these things nowadays. That's, uh, you know, anyway, point being, um, it was very hard to get information on the tribe. But finally, uh, they pointed out uh, that one of my great great aunts. Uh, would remember the tale. And so she told me that long, long, long ago, back when the Sauk were still on our island, there was a massive flood. And uh, the flood rose the waters so much that it trapped a panther inside its cave when the water levels rose up past the mouth of the cave. And an otter, seeing that this panther was uh, starving to death, brought it fish each day keep it alive until the waters finally receded enough to allow the panther to go out. And the panther, of course, didn't, didn't eat the, uh, the otter. So the otter uh, uh, became sacred to us, and our people became known as the underwater panther tribe. And the underwater panthers eventually split into several different clans, uh, but the ones who maintained the, you know, the underwater panther connection was the beaver clan because there was an animal that basically reenacted the uh, story of underwater panther each time by you know building basically an artificial cave and having the mouth of it interrupt below the, the river and uh, you know sharing its space with uh, otters and, and whatnot and the beaver clan is the clan from which uh, I am descendant uh, I am the, the Manitoba line and others are descended all right um, is that the origin story of the, of the tribe that your grandmother taught you? Yeah, yeah, that's the 
that's the that was the wild thing is it had been forgotten for so long and so i was so excited i was telling other members of the tribe about it and so they were able to do more looking into it uh, as well but basically i i had the uh you know the, the the pleasure and honor of being able to unlock uh, a piece of our tribe's past uh and it was it was very precious to me it still is um, yeah. it's a that's a great story. And it's, yeah. Oh, and it's a beautiful icon as well. Obviously, it wasn't lost on you, and it certainly wasn't lost on me that we have yet another sort of flood myth that sort of starts the whole thing. Yeah, geomyths are fascinating now. And whereas they used to just kind of get dismissed as, you know, religious backstory and hokum and kids' tales, uh, now science is actually finding... You know, more and more and more uh, validation, factual validation of these things happening. And so geomyths, for those unfamiliar with the term, are when you have a story like a great flood or a, uh, you know, a great fire or some kind of a, you know, a major ecological story that's happened and been passed down either, you know, usually through like an oral history or something, but like, you know, Great Flood of Noah's Ark and stuff. That's a geomyth uh, that occurs at, uh, throughout Earth's uh, histories, along with many others, like when, uh, you know, glaciers would melt enough to suddenly pop like a champagne cork out of the mountains and, and release just an enormous amount of backflowing water between us. So, you know, there's various uh, mountain and river and lake tribes that uh, each have uh, their own geomyths about when, when that happened as well. Uh, heck, they just recently even had one in the paper uh, about a connecting point, I believe, between, uh, I think it was either Ireland and Britain or Ireland and, and somewhere else. might have been Scotland. The, the Isle was Jersey, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And the locals spoke of a time when you could just walk right across to the other landmass and... Uh, you know, uh, ge historians and geologists and stuff were like, no, no, that's ridiculous. There's a, you know, 15 kilometer or whatever stretch of land, uh, of ocean between them. There's not any land there. And, you know, come to find out that, yep, in point of fact, there, there was. It's just been covered by the sea since then. No, you're absolutely right. And this is, it, it's not just there. It, it happened, all, you know, it's happening all through uh, the South Pacific. But, of course, in modern times, the modern, the, the reason why everyone's going to know about it soon is because it's redefining the continental shelves and the, mm -hmm. and nation shelves as to, so it's expanding territorial waters, basically, which changes navigation routes and, and resource harvesting rights and, and all the things that, well, call, you know, uh, often ca causes wars and, disputes over territory so it th this while while it's an amazing thing and, and they're finding uh like like you know bar basically buried cities you know every city is atlantis of course but you know they're they're finding you know architecture and and archaeology and you know marine archaeology is 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 going to become a, a real thing assuming we live um but yeah but that's how it's going to play out so anybody listening to the show and thinks Ah, big deal. Yeah, yeah, we know there was the Be the Bering Land Bridge, and yes, we've heard about Pangaea and Lemuria, and you know it's mostly nonsense. Well, it's it's 
just just remember this show when when there's disputes between Cuba and the United States or or you know uh, South American countries and and you know Aruba or whatever. Well, Aruba's a little far. Uh, um, no, no, Aruba. Yeah, you know, uh, I was thinking I was confusing Aruba with Bermuda, Bermuda, but you know, especially in in you know where the Spratly Islands are and and you know where China's ever expanding. So uh, that's probably the most likely flashpoint. But you never know how the flashpoints points to me anyway that's more from mike hilliard on the red line to cover um but uh i just wanted to i just hope everyone puts like a little asterisk or pin in their the back of their minds to remember this conversation and matter you know if they think it doesn't matter it, it may well affect their lives right now even if they're not spiritual oh it very much does so at least uh, according to geomyths in the past and uh you know even the uh so as an idea of what it, you know, may or may not have done in the past, but also what it can do to people, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, come across a copy of the, the Book of the Hopi, and they have uh, it, the accuracy of the Hopi's uh, oral traditions and uh, uh, astronomical records and everything else is just mind-blowing. Uh, and one of the things that's, uh, you know, mentioned uh, a few times are the different worlds that they had. And depending on, you know, whether or not we've uh, been on uh, other planets or not, you know, you have uh, the first world, which, you know, it could be, it could be that uh, it was over as far, if you just took a strictly Earth, uh, Earth-centric uh, point of view on uh, the myths, uh, the first world, the the um, Hopi people and others would have been uh, probably over in uh, Asia, uh, more than likely just uh, reading the descriptions of the you know the cultures and stuff at the time, probably uh, having left the uh, you know the Tigris Euphrates area and migrating eastward across uh, until that world. Uh, basically was deemed, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, it was going to get destroyed with fire, if if memory serves. And uh, this kind of happens right around the time of other geomyths in that area, like in the Mahabharata, where, uh, you know, the uh, the earth is largely scorched by fire uh, in a a massive war that would render cities and people into ash and the land into uh, poison that would kill anyone who tried to walk across it and make them sick and their hair fall out and stuff. So there's, you know, there's a, a lot of parallels to some sort of a nuclear war or something similar that uh, just made the uh, Asian continent largely inhospitable for, for uh, at, at, least, at least some areas uh, many thousands of years ago. So then uh, Spider Woman who uh, is one of the helpers of the sun god, um, sealed up people into tubes uh, with uh, food that wouldn't run out and basically sent them into the water to uh, drift across the the ocean. And uh, then uh, at some point when uh, they emerged into the third world, uh, that would have been the California area, more than likely. And they traveled east until they hit the uh, 
the Rocky Mountains and then traveled north and south along it in a swastika pattern, not like the Nazi swastikas, but you know, the plus with the bent L's uh, shape designs on it. And each, uh, each of the clans within the Hopi, uh, or the people who were the Hopi, uh, who the Hopi would become, rather, uh, were instructed uh, by the guardian of uh, that land that they had to migrate along these areas before they settled down. And uh, so um, when they, uh, so you can actually find uh, records and evidence of the Hopi even as far south as like the Incas and in New Mexico and even, uh, you know, bordering along with the, uh, the Aztecs and, and Toltecs and whatnot. So, uh, and then as far north as uh, Canada. Uh, so apparently they, uh, I mean, you can actually, you can, I guess where I was going with that is in a lot of people's histories, and I just touched on a couple of them there. You can tie these geomyths into uh, common narratives of uh, people kind of traveling across the globe into different areas as a result. As far as what's to come uh, with floods and uh, you know, landmass and whatnot, uh, my own personal theory is take your uh, you know, take your current estimates in the feet or tens of feet and multiply it by 10. And you're probably a lot more likely to uh, see the equivalent level of ocean rise because a lot of people and even a lot of scientists out there trying to analyze this don't realize the swimsuit effect where, so you know how uh, if you've ever worn a swimsuit and gotten into a pool and the, uh, the suit itself bubbles up and stays on the surface long after your body itself is sunk beneath it because mm -hmm. you have this air trapping layer beneath it. Well, the mantle is very much in the same way uh, where it meets the ocean. You've got pockets of air and other gases that are keeping the land above it buoyant or, um, you know, they're barely supported with uh, columns of rock and dirt and stuff that uh, you know, would, would eventually get washed away if the barriers between them were gone. So, you know, if you look at an area like coastal Texas, where most of our land is loam and bedrock is really far down, the sea levels and water tables and stuff can get hit with uh, ocean waters uh, washing those areas beneath the land away. Uh, without us necessarily noticing until a giant sinkhole opens, like what happened in the intersection in Guatemala and, and other places around the world. So as sea levels continue to rise uh, in the feet or tens of feet or however much people are expecting, you're, you're going to have a lot of areas that uh, just suddenly sink and fall down and get washed away because the land underneath them has been... Uh, uh, washed away and can no longer support it. Uh, yeah. So uh, the area of Texas, uh, if you kind of want to imagine what that's going to look like, if you start heading up towards, you know, westward towards the Grand Canyon, where you see the mesas, uh, you know, in West Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and Utah, uh, poking up 
uh, from the ground for hundreds of feet up with relatively flat, flat ground uh, beneath it. Uh, you can imagine that being Texas in the future and then just raise the water level up to the near the tops of those mesas uh, and that you're going to see stuff like that happen all around the world as time goes on and uh, the land drops away and you have a lot of series of unconnected islands now uh, around the place where mountains, mesas, or otherwise tall land in the hundreds of feet used to be. Well, that is uh, pretty scary stuff, and but that fits in the Garden of the Doom uh, motif, I suppose. Uh, well, not I suppose, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's like that building in Miami that, that fell. No, nobody's really worried about the underlying cause. They're just worried that that building, you know, they didn't do the construction and the, the homeowners didn't want to pay for, or the condo owners didn't want to pay the fee to get it done. But uh, of course, it's the, the building that's not maintained properly. It's going to fall first. That's, that, it, it, but it's, it should be a warning to, you know, to other buildings, uh, you know, and, and homeowners as well. Anyway, that, that's, uh, but, you know, uh, there's the there's the folks out there who believe in climate change, and then there are folks out there who say it's not man-made; it's part of a natural cycle. And either way, what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, either way, either way, if you if you think it's coming, whether it's natural or not, I mean, you shouldn't, shouldn't you do something to try to prevent the damage? If in fact you want you know humans to survive it, if if you're a true environmentalist, I mean. You know, yeah, yeah, we'll sacrifice a, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of things that are living now, but the earth will regenerate. Um, so that's, that's just, uh, but that also is probably another show. So I, I want to go back to the Hopi for, for a moment because my understanding, but my understanding is from, you know, probably every source except, you know, First Nation, Native American, is that the Hopi referred to as the old ones and that even in the Hopi, legend that there was a precursor people called the Anasazi, I believe, who that roughly translates to star people or in or some people say ant people or the word Anunnaki appears in one of the languages as ant people, which of course ties everything to, you know, Sumeria, of course. But is there is there any um is there anything to that? Oh, very much so. And each of those answers kind of has its own uh, separate mythology behind it. Uh, we kind of went with the main three that you mentioned. Uh, the ant people, uh, for instance, uh, if you were to take it, uh, if you were to kind of take it to its scientific uh, and literal origins, you know, humans used to be much, much smaller, uh, as well as our own precursor primates like lemurs and, and whatnot. And, uh, one of the smallest lemurs that's still around, you know, is, uh, you know, smaller than the palm of your hand. And the largest ants are as large as the palm of your hand. Yikes. Uh, so uh, in the precursor times before the third world, uh, the uh, the people uh, that were seen as you know worthy of saving uh, by the sun god uh, were instructed via spider lady and uh, uh, the other garden uh, the other guardian I can't remember whom uh, what the name was on that uh, I think it was it might have been Tokala 
But uh, anyway, they ordered people uh, that were to be saved to go live among the ant people. And uh, so they, they went into the hills with the ant people, and the ant people took care of the people, the, the, the humans, or to be humans, or you know, whatever they were, uh, by sharing their food with them. But, you know, the, the, the precursors ate a lot more than the ants. And so the ants, uh, still, you know, following the creator's orders, continued to get their food and they grew smaller in size while the people grew larger in size uh, until eventually they emerged, uh, you know, from the, from the hills when the air and the land was safe to go into again. So if you think of, you know, back to the nuclear war illusion uh, or whatever type of, you know, war would have caused something like that. Uh, the, uh, you can almost think of it like a bomb shelter. Sure. And if you take the ant people literally, then it could just mean we were that much smaller at the time. Ants were that much larger at the time, uh, you know, kind of making it feasible that a people might learn how to domesticate ants uh, the same way we do with bees and horses and cows and things like that. And, uh, uh, you know, using their uh, their own sugary, uh, you know, foods that they make uh, to keep us alive during that time, uh, as well as their own uh, farm, underground farming and, and uh, planting abilities as well. You don't even have to domesticate them. You, you can just leverage it and just not bother them and just, you know, follow their burrowing and follow their tunnels and you know, see what they're eating and eat what they eat. It just don't bother them and they won't bother you. And, um, you know, it doesn't need to be, you know, an intelligent domestication, just be, you know, just, uh, sort of be, well, you know, sort of parasitic almost, or, or well, leveraging is probably the, the word. I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go along. Well, no, I mean, it stands, it stands to reason. I mean, I, I think soldier ants and, you know, guardians of the nest and stuff might've otherwise attacked, but, sure it wouldn't take a whole lot for someone to figure out to cope themselves with whatever secretions and, and chemicals and whatnot would be necessary to keep them from, you know, being attacked by the ants or even just accepted as, you know, Oh, yep. That's supposed to be there. Uh, and, and having them move on. So right, keep uh, a wide berth, you know, know, know what the, yeah. the borderline is. Um, right. Anyway. I, so even from yeah. a scientific perspective, you know, something like the ant people uh, would be totally feasible and plausible without any suspension of disbelief other than someone who might think that, you know, there was never anything uh, precursor to humans. But science has already uncovered something like 30 different hominid species that uh, coexisted with uh, uh, homo sapiens. And so, I mean, they, you'd have to be pretty willfully blind to... You know, to ignore the ideas of, you know, uh, other humanoid people, you know, and then you could take it even a step further from that and, uh, you know, go with the assumption that the precursors weren't necessarily human at all, but rather some other intelligent species that looked upon primates kindly and, uh, you know, cared for and watched over the primates. Uh, until such time as they had brought about their own, as the precursors had brought about their own ends through war or strife or disease or, or whatnot, uh, that then it was the primates' turn to take over. 
Uh, and then, you know, uh, as far as the, the sky people goes, that actually kind of ties in with our, uh, with my tribe as well as, uh, part of my family lineage, uh, was many generations ago, uh, there was a marriage between the daughter of the sky people and the chief, uh, of one of the Manitoas and, uh, her name was Shepeha. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, and again, it kind of gets into whose whose narrative you want to follow because they were called, you know, either the the sky people or the cloud people is what they were commonly referred to. So if you went with, uh, strictly a, uh, say a BIA, uh, or ethnographer's point of view, you could say, oh, well, that was probably a, uh, you know, a McLeod family or something from Scotland. Scotland had uh, quite a few different uh, immigrants over into Sackenbach's lands that uh, would, uh, you know, could, could make peace. And so it, it stands to reason that you might have had, uh, you know, some sort of a, uh, a marriage between their, uh, you know, their family and ours uh, to help cement that because, the, you know, the cloud people were very pale and they had blue eyes. And so that's why. Anyone looking at my photos probably like, why is this white guy talking to us about uh, Indian stuff? <laughs> and, you know, I would say that's, uh, you know, that's genetics. That's, um, that's kind of uh, the part of the agreement. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they married it. Uh, the Manitoas remained chiefs for generations uh, afterwards, inheriting the title until they eventually switched to democracy somewhere around 15 or 20 years ago. Banking with Arundel Federal Savings Bank means so much more than you think. Your money stays in the local community. It helps everyone grow and prosper. From a young couple moving into their first ever home to a growing family getting the bigger house they need. What else would you expect from one of the best community-minded banks in all of Maryland? Visit ArundelFederal.com for current rates and special offers and help keep it local. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of owning a home but feel like it's just out of reach? If only you had perfect credit or a big down payment. At First National Bank, we believe homeownership is for everyone. That's why we offer affordable options for all budgets with one-on-one support from a home loan expert who's in your neighborhood and in your corner. Get started at fmb-online.com slash own it or your local FMB. FMB member FDIC equal housing lender NMLS number 766529. Wow. So one version is uh, it could be the, uh, the, the clouds. The other is that literally from from the sky of the stars, which, are, you know, of course, you know, is sort of like the watchers, right. the Anunnaki, Zeus coming down and, you know, doing what he wants kind of thing. Um, you know, basically, you know, whatever region you're from, there's a similar legend of, of someone coming down and, and, you know, the intermarrying, um, kind of thing, you know, Gilgamesh, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I kind of, I kind of take a halfway point in that myself, uh, you know, cause again, I never really pretend to know the answers. I just collect more questions. Sure. Um, but, uh. So a very, very, like you said, a very common theme uh, throughout many ancient cultures is a sky people or 
a cloud people or a star people of some sort that came through and would visit, uh, say, every 20 years or so. You see this everywhere from uh, to from Hermes to uh, uh, the various devas in uh, the Gitas to uh, a ton of different ton of different other entities, so basically put it that way. Um, and they almost always descend from the sky in some sort of craft. And, you know, uh, in case you haven't gathered by now, I'm also a huge fan of science, uh, which I guess is one of the reasons shamanism appeals to me. You know, my, my God is always there. I wake up in the morning and I look up and there's my God shining in the sky. I'm a heliotheist. Uh, but uh, what may be... Uh, are more plausible than aliens coming to visit Earth is the idea that uh, at least one, if not many, civilizations throughout history figured out hot air balloon travel and would have traveled across lands and waters uh, via hot air balloons to trade with people. And if you just kind of rode those currents, those air currents around the world, uh, you could keep coming back to the same spots approximately every 20 years or so. So, uh, you know, you figure a civilization that has managed to uh, spend their whole life in a caravan of floating uh, balloon ships could just as easily live off of a trade network where they stop in one port and they settle down, they do their, their trading, maybe get food or water or whatever it is they need to stock up on, trading gifts that they brought from other lands too far away for, for those people to get to, and then going back up and continuing on their journey. So uh, I, I, I kind of think of it almost like a, uh, uh, a caravan uh, of, of uh, skyships, I guess you could say, uh, where people had figured out, you know, hey, hot air rises. And use bladders or cloths or whatnot to fill up with hot air and float somewhere else. And those things would long since be destroyed by now or mistaken for regular boats uh, or other things because the stuff that was used to trap the hot air would have long since biodegraded to you know, nothingness or been destroyed or burned or repurposed into clothing or whatnot. It's a great image. You could actually also see uh, sails on the sides to help with uh, directional navigation. Definitely. Very even rotors. I mean, people people knew about rotors back then. Uh, one of the ways that uh, ancient, uh, I think it was Greeks, uh, would move water was with something called an Archimedes screw, where you could... Uh, basically turn a shaft that like a, uh, that was shaped like a giant drill uh, along a tube, and it would push water upwards uh, by turning the shaft. So. Yeah, there's that giant wheel at the, I think at the bottom of the, see, the Dead Sea of the Sea of Galilee, and no one's exactly sure what that was for. I think they called it the yeah. giant's wheel, um, but uh, that, that, that could fit into here somewhere. Anyway, um, let's, let's go back to... Uh, you know, if there's any other origin stories or myths, legends, lore, doctrines, use whatever words you like um, that you want to share with us. Sure. Um, anything in particular? I wish I knew what to on? ask. I, you know, I, 
I, I, I don't. I mean, if I was to ask anything, it would probably be, you know, I, I'd probably come up with something like, you know, what's the deal with Coyote? Uh, you know, why, why is he in so many stories? But, um, uh, but uh, yeah, well, let's start with Coyote. Because Coyote, I mean, and the few things I, uh, you know, he's sort of like a, almost like a trickster god, almost like, sort of like the spider is in the, in the Caribbean and, well, Loki is in the Norse. I mean, uh, what's up with Coyote? Or even Monkey King in the East. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, so Terry Pratchett, uh, author of the Discworld series, and uh, I don't know if he invented the term or just popularized it, but he made one of my favorite terms, which is uh, anthropomorphic personification. Uh, so like, you know, if I say, you know, the Grim Reaper or death or something like that, yep. uh, one of the first images that calls to mind for most people is a, you know, and a guy in a black robe with a scythe ready to go. Unless right. they come from a culture where they had a different anthropomorphic personification of an idea. So, you know, depending on which, uh, you know, mindset you subscribe to, a uh, coyote could either be the anthropomorphic personification of, you know, trickery and uh, playfulness or, uh, you know, the honey badger just not giving an F. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Coyote was, uh, sometimes he would do good things and sometimes he would do terrible things. Like there's a, there's a story where a wolf is trying to kill Coyote and Coyote manages to, uh, uh, trick the wolf into, uh, being away from its home for a long time. So, uh, Coyote then in uh, retaliation for wolf, uh, trying to, to eat him goes in and teases the wolf pup's kids, uh, turns them against their father, and then after offering them milk, pees all over them. <laughs> uh, and then the mom chases him, gets stuck in a crevice, and can't move, and Coyote took advantage of the situation mm. uh, to, uh, you know, uh, rape her, basically. There's no nice way to put it. So, you know, he can be as loathsome or funny or indifferent as, uh, as they come. Uh, he's, he's very, yeah, Loki is kind of a very good, uh, uh, similar spirit to him. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the funny thing about most animal entities and deities and, uh, and things is, Unlike a lot of Western uh, cultures, they, they weren't necessarily worshipped as gods. So there wasn't like, you know, the god coyote or the god porcupine or, you know, the goddess steer lady and, and stuff like that. The, you didn't really worship them because in many ways, these animal spirits were just as flawed and terrible as humanity uh, can be. Uh, even though in other ways they can be just as generous and, and kind uh, as well. So they were they were less of a being to be worshipped and more of a uh, more of a study in uh, humanities without necessarily having to uh, pick out a specific uh, person uh, to, to target in there because you got to figure in a land with 500 or more nations uh, uh, prior to the destruction by, by plagues and whatnot, uh, it might be very 
difficult to find a common language, much less a common name uh, to ascribe this tale to. But the coyote being ubiquitous across most of North America was uh, very easy to kind of point at because it, it displayed a lot of the same behaviors of, of sometimes trickery, sometimes kindness, uh, most of the time just general mischief uh, and um, you know, kind of serving as a good, uh, I don't know, not a, necessarily a moral compass to point to, but a moral compass to use as a direction. You know, like, okay, so, you know, you're doing this thing as a joke, but is it doing it to harm someone or to gain an advantage or just to be funny? You know, and it kind of, it forces you to think about what you're doing and, and why. Well, it could also so, be, you know, from chaos or strife, you get stronger. You know, the, the people say you need wars to, for, for the, the culture to adapt, for uh, society to form new technologies. You know, sort of you have to burn a forest to regenerate the forest kind of thing. Yeah, and that is also, uh, that's also sometimes a very similar theme. So, you know, going into, I know uh, uh, a lot of people uh, probably intended for this mainly to focus on North American tribes, but the one I've been educating myself most in recently is uh, you know, the ancient, ancient Indian people, like from India and uh, the Devas, mm -hmm. because we, uh, you know, uh, in, in North America, uh, there weren't a whole lot of tribes with a written word to go with it. So there's not a lot of books to study, but the Vedas uh, are very, very close to uh, many of the, the oral traditions and teachings that I've found over the past. And so taking an example from uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Mahabharata, uh, Arjuna, who is kind of the, the protagonist uh, in the series, the human protagonist, one of the five Pandava sons, and uh, he has chosen Krishna as his chariot driver when given the choice between either having Krishna's armies or having Krishna by his side, but Krishna not actually fighting. Um, and so the Bhagavad Gita itself uh, takes place after Arjuna sees all of his family and friends and teachers and people that he loves lined up on opposite sides of this battle line, this massive battle line that's supposed to take place, a world war. And he stops and he says, I can't do this. You know, I, I can't go killing these people. And Krishna has to basically talk him into the battle and you don't really find out until the end of Mahabharata why the battle had to take place in the first place, why Krishna was so eager to see this thing along. And uh, the explanation that they're finally given is that over time, uh, intelligent species uh, become too wicked, too powerful, their weapons too strong to the point where they could challenge the gods themselves and uh, you know, wipe out any trace of you know what is what is good in their creator's sight, and so they get uh, they get uh, they get put into a war against each other. Things are uh, orchestrated so that um, they wipe each other out in the process. You know, also along with lots of good people, and 
uh, uh, people who you know dedicated their lives to kindness. But, and I guess the assumption in the story is this: those people are either collateral damage or uh, acceptable losses, or just fated to do their part in wiping out evil. Well, if you have to start uh, over, you have to start over, right? I mean, the, the 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 floods. I mean, the Tower of Babel is sort of like a version of that story, just localized. Um, you know, Armageddon comes from Armageddon. You know, the the Mount Megiddo, or where there's going to supposed to be a similar type of you know battle. So, yeah, this is this is as I think you described said it earlier. Uh, you know, it's pan cultural. You use you use a different term, but. Uh, um, you know, uh, transcontinental, whatever. Um, at the, yeah, that, that is very interesting. We we did a show on the Vedic Indian culture. Uh, I forgot what I called it, but it was probably the Vedic. But anyway, if anyone wants to check it out, it'll be fairly obvious. And it wasn't. Uh, it was it was probably in the nineties uh, for those episodes. Um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. I have a question for you. One. Well, they're both probably fairly easy to answer, but is there any major differences uh, between the origin stories or the lores or doctrines between the Native American cultures that were sort of like the teepee or the wigwam or nomadic versus those that were, uh, you know, formed uh, more permanent communities like like the Pueblo and and the, you know the, I think the Navajo and the Hopi you know sort of lived in in cities so to speak. Yeah, there's um, so the the way in which uh, each people uh, made their dwelling, as best I can tell, primarily that would be based around one of two things. It either had to be something that was fairly easy to make with materials that were in situ, or it had to be very difficult to make, uh, requiring materials from a long journey. So the Navajo, for instance, um, they're, uh, of course, I can't, Hogans, I think, uh, or Ogans, uh, I think are the name of their, their houses. Uh, you know, they require uh, a particular type of wood to be from a fully grown tree and they have to be laid out in just such a way and obtaining this wood is very difficult because it's not like there's a whole lot of trees in the particular areas where you find these ogons. Uh, so they would generally involve some sort of a pilgrimage or a trip or you know, something along those lines to obtain the materials uh, you know versus say like uh, the Aztecs, who were very much around a, you could almost call them uh, like a, an industrial society, uh, where things were very much, a lot of people think of the, the Aztecs as like one people that had a massive empire of Aztecs going across the place, but really, uh, arguably, what their best uh, ability was, was assimilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, for instance, the Toltecs had been around and technologically and, and weapon-wise uh, uh, superior to the to what the Aztec had available, but the Aztecs had more number, and they decided to basically uh, ally or uh, marry with the Toltecs 
and uh, or however you know however it's interpreted. I'm sure there's many interpretations uh, and subtleties to them about what happened. And uh, but eventually, more of the Toltec beliefs were either outlawed or ignored or uh, you know uh, lessened. Uh, in lieu of the Aztec beliefs and uh, system of doing things, so they would they would assimilate the technology and the learning and the abilities, uh, but in many many ways they were basically the Rome of South America. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually knew that, but I'm glad that you described it because uh, well, first of all, I knew it because I read a book called, by a guy named Gary Jennings called. Aztec. So I'm relying on him when I say I knew, it means I know what that author put in their book, which was a, a historical fiction book. So it, it you know, it's fiction. Um, but I don't know that, that many of our audience would know that, but Aztec is, I mean, they didn't call themselves Aztecs. I think they called, I think it was like the Mexica or something similar to that, which is where the word Mexico comes from. Um, and they were originally the Aztecs, as I understand it, they were from further north and, and, where I think Aztec means dog people or something like that. And, 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 uh, you know, eventually they rose by, you know, being nomadic and, and, you know, some combination of ruthless and cunning, you know, much like the, you know, the Mongols assimilated and, and the Romans and, you know, and any other empire, very few empires, you know, just, you know, raise everything and say, you know, it's our way or the highway, you know, the success, the successful ones, um, need to have assimilation. Then you have people sign on because it's like status. It was status to become a Roman citizen. Uh, that mm-hmm. sort of, that sort of thing. Um, so the Navajo probably needed more. They were probably more guarded of their territory because they probably needed some exclusionary zone to keep those resources for themselves. And it probably had to expand periodically, uh, while there was regeneration, which, you know, maybe led to other conflicts because the Navajo, uh, you know, Again, when I say I know, it's just what I've read or heard. So uh, I've heard or believe I know that the Navajo were were fairly considered fairly ruthless in in the in the Southwest. Yeah, and I mean that's a, it, it's a good contrast that you bring up because uh, you know with the with the Aztecs, for instance, um, it would probably be more accurate to say that it was more of a federation of tribes or an yeah. empire of different tribes. Uh, that basically were, uh, what's the word, like vassals of, of the, the Aztecs. So one of the reasons that you may have so many different words for what Aztec means uh, will be a direct result of uh, the people who had been brought into the, the Aztec nations and what their feelings about the Aztecs were as well. So. You know, you might have some very complimentary terms, you might have some very derogatory terms, and you might have some that are just head scratchers. Mm. Uh, you know, whereas the like the Navajo and the Hopi and the Ute, a real common theme among them is that the creator would get uh, the creator uh, basically tied in convenience and uh, luxury and uh, indolence with uh, evil uh, or leading to evil. And so they were prescribed to have to live in progressively harsher and more difficult lands, uh, which kind of has its own little interesting parallel to the Garden of Eden. So, you know, in the Hopi story, you've got, 
you know, the first and second worlds were way too easy for humanity, and it was too easy for them to live, and so they were able to spend more and more time for uh, leisure and abuse of their abilities and, and whatnot, and so that eventually led to the rising of enough evil that it required a reset, and then in the second world, same thing happened again. Even that was too easy, but apparently the third world was at least difficult enough added in with those migration uh, patterns that were required that uh, it kept people kind of hopefully uh, focused on uh, the mission at hand. But even that uh, didn't always succeed. So you, you would have like the, uh, you know, the dreaded bow clan uh, in, in the Hopi Legends that were, you know, one of the one of the many clans of the Hopi. But uh, as happens way too often with any nation, uh, they ended up fighting uh, each other over resources. Uh, I believe uh, the biggest battle they had was over the Red City in the south. Uh, although no one really knows where the Red City is, uh, there's there's a few different ideas about where it could be. Is it like your Atlantis? Uh, kind of, but on land. Basically, uh, the Red City was uh, it was uh, a large, magnificent city that was on the southernmost, uh, or at least along the south, uh, in the migratory patterns uh, that had been ordained or prescribed. And uh, it was, you weren't supposed to stay there. You, each of the cities that were at those areas, you weren't supposed to stay at for very long. You were supposed to stay basically long enough to, you know, get some rest, get your feet on the ground, and then continue your migration until you get to your own city where you're supposed to be. Uh, and then at some point, there was some kind of a disagreement, and the Bow Clan uh, had, you know, superior, uh, technologically superior weapons and have been waging enough war and committing enough atrocities and in the eyes of the other Hopi clans that they were denied entrance into the Red City. And so the, the Bow clan said, uh, okay, so we'll just fight you for it. So they decided to uh, wage war against the Red City and gradually the city fell uh, to the to the Bow clan and the Kachinas uh, who, um, that kind of merits its own conversation because Pachinas is, is kind of a complex term depending on specifically what you're referring to. But these Kachinas were neither gods nor humans. Uh, they were you know, guardians and watchers and stuff. And so they stayed behind in the Red City and waited until the rest of the uh, Hopi clans had uh, evacuated from it. And then they destroyed the city. Uh, and uh, and basically left the message of, you know, if you need us, you can call upon us and we'll help. Uh, and I guess kind of tying into that with the Chinas, um, you know, you had, uh, you kind of had three different types of Kachinas. You had the, you know, Kachinas with a capital K, and there were only a few of them, but those were, know very much uh, in their eyes the people from the stars the you know the aliens uh, you know both metaphorically and literally still not necessarily gods but 
uh, seen as uh, you know very very powerful uh, compared to you know to, to humans and whatnot. Angels. They basically kind of archangels, that kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. Uh, you know, they kind of they did their thing and then they left to go onward, never to return. Uh, which I guess kind of makes sense if you are thinking in terms of traveling from one star to another, it's going to be a long enough journey. You're probably not going to see anyone remaining alive if you ever come back, which probably won't because uh, by the time people think to come back, that generation is going to be long mm -hmm. gone and dead. But mm -hmm. apparently the, you know, the Kachinas with a capital K left behind Kachinas with a, you know, a lowercase K who acted as kind of dormant guardian spirits. You could, you could almost think of them as, uh, yeah, I don't know. You could almost think of them as avatars or guardians or spirits that would show up when called, uh, uh to help out with things, but only if you knew the right words and movements. Uh, and, and those very much tie into the devas in Hindu mythology. Uh, and, and Jainism and whatnot with uh, sutras, which are basically ways of you know, praying or singing or posing oneself into various uh, patterns that the body can do uh, to, to get the, you know, the devas to execute these commands. And the, the kachinas uh, were kind of the... Have you heard the term concierge medicine and wondered exactly what that means? In short, it's the answer to the question, isn't there a better solution to my healthcare? Concierge medicine means virtually no waiting for your doctor. It means 24-7 access to physician care. It means truly individualized healthcare, all at a cost that's lower than you might expect. See pricing and learn more at PartnerMD.com. It's better healthcare for an even better you. Do you dream of owning a home, but feel like it's just out of reach? If only you had perfect credit or a big down payment. At First National Bank, we believe homeownership is for everyone. That's why we offer affordable options for all budgets with one-on-one -on -one support from a home loan expert who's in your neighborhood and in your corner. Get started at fmb-online.com slash own it or your local FMB. FMB member FDIC equal housing lender NMLS number 766529. Same way. But then you also have the Kachina clan, which was one of the leadership clans in the Hopi, and were very much regular, you know, people like uh, the other humans that were in there. Uh, but their their primary mission was to kind of keep track with, uh, you know, what the expectations were of the powers that be. So they were the people that were left in charge because they had the tie to the Kachinas with the lowercase k and the capital K, or at least they claim to have such. Yeah, I kind of think of them as the tech support, really, uh, you know, kind of going with the today's modern understanding of uh, the way things go. If you pictured uh, some sort of a uh, neural net interface across Earth, and uh, if you were a very, very technologically advanced species on Earth, and you knew you were going to leave for the stars one day and that there weren't going to be any more people like yourself left on earth, but you wanted to help the life that was going to be there in some way. So you make some sort of a drone or a robot system or a computer system or whatnot that can answer uh, inquiries. 
and codes and things to to help out and it would answer if it recognized those things and so if you're a uh, you know if you're a programmer and an engineer in a society like that you're not going to design something made of metal and batteries because that stuff's going to wear out way too quickly you have to think in timelines in terms of you know thousands or millions of years uh, so instead you make these things out of biological elements that will continue to reproduce and spread and wait for the appropriate signals uh, and um, that way when those signals are given they can be responded to and just like how you wouldn't design uh, ace responders out of metal and, and batteries and things you wouldn't make the commands that you issue them require some sort of a uh, operating system or code base like an iPhone or a computer because by the time those things even become available again, they're going to be, you know, they're going to have their own uh, systems that they've developed. So instead you go with the physiology of the things that you want to protect and figure out what, it, what those things are capable of doing. And so in the case of humans, You've got motions, body motions, and sounds that one can produce. Uh, so the ohm is a very uh, prevalent uh, meditative uh, sound that one makes. And the sound itself actually carries across many, many cultures, not just uh, you know Hindu cultures. But um, the, the important part of ohm isn't the O. It's the, you know, that, that kind of humming sound. To right, it. The, the medicine ball uh, sound, the throat chanting sound. I, I always uh, forget the instruments in, in Australia that, that, that sort of make a similar uh, didgeridoo. thing. Didgeridoo. I'll forget yeah. it again, but that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, the didgeridoo, uh, a great example of the Aboriginal Australians. Um, and so I kind of think of that as our organic dial tone to start the initiate to initiate the, the conversation for anyone old enough to remember when you actually had phones you could pick up off of a receiver and hold up to your ear instead of cell phones uh the first sounds you would always hear is the dial tone yep. and so I, I kind of think of it like that and then whatever the body motion and sounds you make afterwards are kind of like dialing the phone number or issuing the uh you know, the computer command line or whatever it is that, you know, however it, it does want to consider those things. Uh, and then, uh, so, uh, I guess you could almost think of Pachinas, uh, or guardian spirits or, uh, other spirits throughout, uh, many indigenous peoples, um, mythologies, the ones that they don't necessarily worship, but they transcend normal human abilities and they grant blessings or, or banes, depending on how they're used. Uh, you could almost think of them as like an organic computer system with uh, uh, drones capable of responding to what's needed. And it might not even be necessarily that simplified. It might have been something codified into every living creature's DNA that we just instinctually respond to uh, in ways that, uh, you know, yeah, we don't even understand. Uh, 
Uh, and that kind of ties back into the whole shamanism idea and photonic light and the ability for, you know, a human to be able to communicate with something like a tree or a bird or a deer or something like that in that you find this universal organic language to speak to it with and make those requests. You know what? I, I just realized that we never actually got to what a, you know, I guess the however simple it can be. To, what, what is the definition of a shaman or shamanism? I would say, and I'm by no means, uh, you know, the definitive authority on this, but in my own opinion, shamanism is uh, the one who continually learns about ways to connect themselves with the rest of the life and universe around them. Uh, so, for instance, uh, a good portion of my day, uh, I have a segment in the morning and in the afternoon and then at night when I get off work. And I go out to my meditation garden and I observe very closely uh, the world around me as I meditate. And uh, maybe uh, I am given an idea from the trees or from the plants or from an animal that happens to be nearby. Or maybe instead I notice something uh, very different. Maybe one particular leaf looks very different from the way it did the day before. I study that and try and find out what it means. It's it's a kind of a study of the interconnectedness of life, uh, as well as the potential for life itself, and just learning how to communicate with it and uh, to understand one's connection to it in one way or another, and ever expanding that outward. It's kind of an understanding that as humans, our perceptions are extremely limited. The range of what we can hear, touch, see, feel, taste is minuscule, doesn't even do the right justice to it. It's infinitesimal compared to the range available to be experienced. So, you know, ordinarily a human might be able to expand that range with technology. We might use binoculars to see further away, a telescope to see even further away, or maybe we use, uh, you know, some sort of an audio, like a hearing aid or uh, whatever they call the distance hearing things, a shotgun mic or something mm -hmm. uh, to pick up uh, distances uh, further away, or even a gas chromatograph to smell things at the atomic level that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, and then, you know, trying to uh, understand those things technologically as, as a human way, trying to expand one's own latent self to be able to experience those things sans technology uh, is probably where I would say the shamanism lies. I would definitely say not to confuse it with medicine men or wise women. Uh, or, you know, anything like that where there's a sort of medicinal doctoring aspect to it. Uh, so, you know, that, that's probably one of my most frequent corrections that I have to make is, you know, if I tell someone I'm a shaman, they're like, oh, like a medicine man. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not a healer. It's an entirely different thing. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. I mean, a shaman could be a medicine man if they were trained in that art, but it's a, it's it's two different disciplines. Much like mm-hmm. a much like a lawyer could be a doctor, also something like that. Um, yeah, or even trying to compare, say, a doctor versus a uh, a doctor versus a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, you could have scientists that are doctors and doctors that are scientists, but primarily uh, they're, you know, they're studying two very different fields. A physicist, that was the word I was looking for, a physicist versus a doctor. Uh, So shamanism would probably be the uh, physicist equivalent of what a medicine man would be to a doctor. So a community would need both or would benefit from having Mm -hmm. both. I hate to go from something so so spiritual to probably things that are not unimportant, but but a little bit more quick fire. The, by the way, I'm gonna we'll talk pro, post uh, post show about hopefully an idea that that you will agree to for the future. But if not, that's that's you know it, it is what it is. But um, what's the difference between a totem and a talisman? Ah, so totems are usually denoted as a way to mark territory uh, or an either either physical territory like land or spiritual territory like a religion uh, or even communication territory uh, so for instance if you had a totem pole uh, you may have very many different heads on it, each signifying a different thing. You might have one head on it that signifies, you know, this is this particular tribe's lands. Um, another head that, you know, says, uh, these are our spiritual beliefs. And another head that says, this is the language that we speak. Uh, uh, or, you know, any combination or lack or addition uh, thereof. It's, it's basically a message of some sort. That's probably the best way to put it. A totem is uh, a message that you can leave out for someone, uh, various, uh, opposed to a, a talisman or an amulet, uh, which those are typically used to either attract or repel something. So, ah. you know, you might have a, you know, a talisman to bring luck, or you might have an Alice, a, 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 amulet to ward off the evil eye or something to uh, to that effect. Interesting. And what, what what would you consider the dream catchers? Um, so I would say those actually probably classify as a fetish. And by fetish, I don't necessarily mean, I don't mean like, a, you know, wearing latex and, and right. or you love stuff like that. It's, it's not yet. Right. Yeah, it's more of a, a fetish is more of a construct that utilizes amulets and talismans uh, and has some sort of a purpose or a significance behind it. So, for instance, uh, you know, if you designed a fetish uh, like a dream catcher, where, uh, you know, the idea is that the cat gut or whatever sinew was used for the wedding inside of it, is uh, used to attract dreams, kind of the same way as a honeypot would. And, and then uh, the, the little crystal that's usually sewn into the center of it acts as uh, a, a fly trap, uh, a, a way to, to trap the evil dreams in there until the rays of the sun can hit it in the 
morning and cleanse the crystal. Uh, so, um, you know, ideally your dream catcher should be positioned in a place where the, you know, the rays of the morning sun or whatever, you know, after you're done sleeping, can uh, go across it and cleanse out the, the crystal. Uh, and then the good dreams are filtered in a different way down through the, uh, you know, the tassels at the bottom that have the, you know, either the leather straps and feathers and, and beads and whatnot, uh, so that uh, the good dreams get to filter down uh, to the person. Uh, and I guess that kind of ties into the significance of the feather as well, because the feather has long been seen as by many, many North and South American tribes. Uh, you know, birds were typically messengers between people and heaven or people and God. Uh, and so, uh, and the way that and the feather basically would represent light, uh, you know, divine light of some sort. So you might find a whole lot of uh, references to something that is feathered, but you might also find references to the same thing being effulgent or emitting light uh, or even rainbows uh, for that matter. Uh, because if you think about the way that a feather looks, uh, you know, it even kind of operates and looks the same way light does uh, from certain angles as it filters down through stuff uh, and becoming fractally smaller and smaller as it goes down while still maintaining very much an aspect of the whole uh, and larger being. So I guess that was a bit of a long-winded answer, but... Uh, so I would I would probably consider the dreamcatcher to be a fetish uh, okay. rather than a, specifically an amulet or a talisman, something that used amulets and talismans. Are there any other sort of common examples of uh, fetish in this context to give uh, folks a little bit more to uh, try to understand that concept? Oh yeah, I mean probably the you know the um, uh, dreamcatcher is definitely one of the most iconic, but another one that uh, you know, is very commonly uh, pervades our pipes. Um, so uh, many tribes used uh, tobacco or other leaves uh, during their ceremonies for any number of reasons. Um, yeah, oftentimes to, to please the spirits, you know, going into uh, back into the idea that there's only so much that humans necessarily are able to perceive of our bodies are a certain way and stuff, but if you wanted a, a fish to perceive something, you know, you wouldn't try and communicate with it the same way a human uh, would communicate with another human. You might pour some particular type of liquid into the water or something down there, or maybe a sound you know, that the fish uh, could perceive. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm silently saying as I say this because apparently fish don't exist. Uh, if you've read Lulu Miller's book, uh, <laughs> um, but that's a that's an entirely different story. Um, but uh, you know, so if you're trying to communicate with things that are lighter than air, or spirits that travel in the air in the clouds, uh, or are even at ground level, but uh, might as well be transparent gases compared to humans. Uh, then one of the ways you could communicate with them is through the smoke of aromatic plants. Um, so, you know, by, by burning a particular plant and uh, having its, 
as the smoke go out into the air, you're able to communicate your intentions with uh, these other creatures that, you know, wouldn't necessarily be able to even see a human doing a sutra or hear them, uh, you know, singing or something like that. Or but they, maybe, would, maybe they, they would detect the gas and the aroma or the spirit of the gas and, and that they understand because they are also closer to gas. Or, or, or yeah, okay. I, I get it. That, that that's actually uh, interesting. That that I never knew any of that. Um, I feel like oh, I'm looking. We've we've gone a long time, and I have so many other questions. But I feel like I need to be fair of your time. So I, I have ideas for the future, and and probably for things that are more trivial. But I, I think for now, I think I think having you talk to me for an hour and a half is is more than enough for your Sunday afternoon. It's more than generous. So. Uh, is there any place where you have, where, where people can follow you or support you? Or is there, you know, do you have anything to promote? Um, or did I just find you as a, as a subject matter expert and you're happy to talk about it? Because if there's anything to promote, this is a free, this is a free promotion zone. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I guess, uh, I'm remarkably non, uh, self-promoting I, I don't at one point in time uh, I had started the Night Watch Institute uh, in I think around 2017 or so mm-hmm. when uh, when the government finally started admitting that UFOs UIP and whatnot existed and I wanted to study those because there was uh, so much of a connection between the things I had experienced through my own life and uh, I wanted to learn more about it. And basically what I found at the, after uh, long enough trying to study it, that it was basically, you know, trying to study it as a, a very small unfunded uh, organization was pretty much impossible. Uh, and it's only gotten more so with the advent of AI art and video and, and, and whatnot, uh, as well as just, the sheer fact that the technology that's available commercially is able to mimic UFO activity so well that there's nothing I felt that I could contribute to the study that other organizations uh, would not already have at their disposal, except for my, you know, shamanistic knowledge, which you know don't really have people beating down the door for that. So I'm always willing to, you know, hop on and, and, you know, offer my, my two cents where I can find it or point out additional areas to research or even find connections to. So, uh, for instance, uh, you know, my, uh, anyway, the short, short version is I, I don't really have anything to promote, uh, that's a fair I answer. I up the Nightwatch Institute. Uh, now I'm just Brandon, you know, do my job each day. I uh, do my shamanistic stuff outside of work. And, uh, you know, I spend time with my family. Uh, so I, I appreciate the offer. Sure. To, to that, it, that, that's all right. People are more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, it's a shamanistic science. Uh, uh, at uh, or just on on Twitter, 
that's generally the only social media platform I have time to visit these days. I know there's a lot more people ask me to do Instagram and whatnot, but there's, there's only so many hours outside the day I can devote to social media. I'm with you. I, I actually deleted Instagram off my phone. I was just tired of notifications about things I don't care about. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I feel you on it. Anyway, it, if you've got nothing to promote, that, that is fine. But, uh, you know, I found him at, at, at Shaman Safford on Twitter, and I'm sure you can too. Um, but uh, like I said to the audience, I'm going to talk to him post-show uh, and see if maybe we can't come to some future arrangements. But again, an hour and a half is way, way enough on your Sunday afternoon. So I thank you so much, folks. Uh, follow him if you like. Um and thank you very much for listening to the Garden of Doom this week. Remember to give a like, a uh, review, and a subscribe, and tell your friends because this is a genre-defined show. So thank you very much, and you'll hear us next time in the Garden of Doom. Thank you once more, Shaman Brandon uh, Stafford. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me.
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code SWING to receive $200 in free bets on launch day after registering. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. 21 and over, physically present in Maryland. Eligibility restrictions apply. Subject to regulatory licensing requirements. See DraftKings.com MD for full terms and conditions. One per customer. Bonus issued as free bets. No purchase necessary for sweepstake. Void where prohibited. Ends first day DraftKings is allowed to operate in Maryland. See terms at dkng.co md. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.